Yeah. Were any of you, sorry, before we jump into it, I was just to this point, Charles, were any of you in that horrific Facebook group of like a million lawyers mm. right after Trump was elected um, who were just like <laughs> no. screaming about like resist Trump and what are all the like lawyer ideas that we should be having right now to resist Trump and emoluments always felt like it was like that kind of thing right like just throwing throwing yeah spaghetti I mean that's wall. why I didn't yeah, I lasted three minutes in that face. Right. Yeah. Period. Oh, yeah. It I, I was think it turned horrific. into a Ponzi scheme at the end of it or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody even invited me. So easy. Launch your assault now. Take it easy. Raise your weapon. Raise your Good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of Mike Dicta, America's best named legal podcast. I'm your host, Charles Starr. Uh, with me today is uh, Seymour Poncho. Uh, hi, I'm I'm still Rich Rich Lather, actually. <laughs> Never. It's very hard to keep track of the changing names of Rich Lather. Welcome back, Tarek. Uh, and uh, Rhiannon. Hey, hi, everybody. And uh, back since uh, since episode three, how is your, how is everything going, Stefan? I'm doing well. Good, glad to hear it. Uh, we are we are going to start uh, today's show with something that for uh, for months, I years, whatever that I was insistent that I was not going to talk about, uh, which was the emoluments clause. <laughs> <laughs> my my feeling the whole time was not that there was nothing. To it, but I just until a court decided it was justiciable, I was just like, ah, this is a bunch of law professor bullshit, and I don't care about it. I want one person in a robe to go on the record and say that they are willing to make a decision about the emoluments clause, and then I will, uh, you know, get my hands dirty and actually read what people say about this, and then it happened. In the in the district court for the District of Maryland, happened twice. Uh, uh, well, I think it was the same case twice. They decided right. standing, and then they decided uh, they denied a, the motion to dismiss. But yeah, he came down twice on the side of uh, anti-corruption. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, the District of Columbia itself and the state of Maryland itself sued Trump in both his official and personal capacity, uh, arguing that he was violating the emoluments clause in a variety of ways having to do with the way he uh, still retains an ownership interest and arguably some level of uh, input into the running of the Trump Hotel uh, in the old post office in D.C. But then, but it turns out like it ends up the, the two opinions end up being a sort of nerd's paradise of, uh, of decisions on standing and an otherwise almost entirely unexplored, uh, constitutional provision, um, the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses, 
and I don't know. I'm glad. Like I'm glad. It, it's it's one of those things where this has to be it, right? Like an like a, a president who holds on to all of his businesses, and everyone just like spending money to curry favor with him <laughs> seems like exactly how it would fit like short of a bag of cash dropped at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with a lobbying <laughs> codicil. This seems to be about as close as you're going to get in modern times. Charles, not all lobbyists. <laughs> Come on. You're, you would drop a bag of weed, <laughs> not a bag of cash. Um, one thing, but yes, yeah, so I, I read in the decision that I wasn't aware of is that he had promised to cut a check to treasury. Uh, yes. Uh, I think it's in a footnote from, from all of his, from all of his, uh, foreign earned, uh, uh, revenue that went into his trust or something. It hasn't to this, to this date paid a dime of this in. <laughs> right. Well, there are two things, right? They say like the judge is like, he says that he's going to turn over like when he was campaigning, he said he would turn over all of the money. And I think in the standing opinion, it's just in there where he said it. And they're like, there's no evidence that he's done it. And then in, in that was back in March. And then last week, when he denied the motion to dismiss, it comes up again. And they're like, he said this, this doesn't really save him in any constitutional way. And while he has implied that he has done so, there has been no evidence <laughs> whatsoever that he's made this payment. And so it's just like another one of these things where he's like constantly making these claims and saying he is going to do something that he'll never do or that he has done something that he most certainly has not. Right. The other thing that he said pretty explicitly, I I think before inauguration, the the opinion says this as well, is that he would form, he said that he intended to form a trust to hold his business assets, um, which he did, um, but then plaintiffs here, which is the District of Columbia and the state of Maryland, um, they (laughs) point out that he has full access to his trust yeah, and he, he, draw may, down on it right. yeah. he may have actually already received payments from it. So it's not like he, that he's actually put that sort of separation um, in between himself and his profits. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess there were a lot of, there were a lot of questions like the, the standing opinion I thought was kind of interesting, but most of it I think is too, uh, too abstruse even for me to really want to get into. <laughs> um, but they found the standing essentially on the, the Maryland. The one that I thought was interesting was Maryland tried to claim that the emoluments clause was uh was instrumental and vital to their decision to enter the union. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And and therefore they had standing because it was a breach of a 250 year old contract. And so they have standing to enforce it. And the court was like, eh, no, like what? I don't even want to read the amicus on this. And I'm just going to say there are probably other grounds like it just seemed too much for him to want to deal with. 
But they they ended up I think the most important way that they got standing is that they they have ownership interests in like convention centers and hotels that provide like banquet services and stuff similar to what uh, the the Trump Hotel in D.C. provides. And and Trump was kind of ended up getting hoisted on the fact that diplomats from Kuwait and Saudi Arabia are like, well, of course we're staying at his hotel. We want to curry favor with him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like everyone, anyone who he would rely on to be like, no, we just did this in an ordinary business interest. It seemed like our best. They're just like talking to the cameras and they're like, look, we know he's an incredibly vain man and we can get to him by, by staying at his hotel. Um, and I think he was also very undermined by the fact that as soon as he was elected president, he like doubled his rates on everything. And they hired a, a executive level position that was like head of diplomatic outreach or something to the <laughs> Dipl- <laughs> diplomatic sales. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, nice. Even better. I, sales. Even, I must have read too quickly. I didn't even. Yeah, see that. I didn't catch that. That's nuts. But then, yeah, and they also say they also say that he they basically are like, and the market for staying at Trump hotels is completely inelastic. Like, like he hasn't filled more rooms, but it's more profitable because he's selling the exact same number of rooms because the people who are staying there are only staying there because he's the president. And there's basically no rate that he can raise it to well, they're members of that the, would keep Kuwait from coming back. Mem- members of the administration are living there uh, as well. I mean, it, it was, it was pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, honestly. And I thought the standing uh, case was interesting because it sort of did articulate the way that uh, people are being harmed by this. It's not sort of mm-hmm. this, well, you know, Russians and Kuwaitis can get influence, but literally that um, they were making claims that, you know, the wages of people working in other hotels are imperiled, uh, you know, stays at, you know, partially state owned ventures uh, are, are being unfairly competed with. It was it was it was a sort of nice set of. Uh, a, a nice way to use some very concrete economic arguments, you know, uh, yeah. that I thought was and, and direct competition, yeah. right? Like at least one of the, at least one of the foreign stays was canceled at the Ritz Carlton or, and at the Plaza mm-hmm. and transferred over to the Trump hotels, you know? And so, and they, and Trump was like, well, you can't use them. It's not you. And the judge was like, well, no, it's just an example of how, uh, how this works in the context of the emoluments clause that people are putting money in your pocket at the expense of other people because you are the president of the United States. Um, did, and then the, the actual opinion I thought was the, the motion to dismiss opinion I thought was interesting because there is not a word in the emoluments clause that Trump's attorneys uh, did not try to attack. Like they were like, first of all, uh, based on, oh, I didn't, I ended up not looking this up, but an, a t- there was a professor from a university that I had like literally never heard of. Yeah. It's professor. Like it's a professor Tillman from Maynooth university. And um, this 
This professor, I have this noted as kind of a question. The court spends a lot of time addressing this amicus um, that she, I believe, um, writes, and which is, I don't know. Wait, what's the theory? Yeah. What is the theory? So the, theory <laughs> the theory is that um, the emoluments clause um, doesn't, wasn't intended to apply to the president um, because um, it's not a... Oh, what's the wording here? Um, the the office of the presidency isn't an office or title under the United States. Um, and the court here spends a lot of time dealing with that. And I kind of wondered why, um, since it, I mean, it did seem like a bizarre, um, it did seem like a bizarre theory. I think just because it was first impression, right? And so since it is a case of the first imp- of first impression, the first thing I guess to get out of the way is you know, on because he made the argument, right? Trump made the argument that the emoluments clause does not uh does not apply to him because it applies to everyone else. Uh he is like he does not hold an office under the United States or something like that. And I guess it's from the text of the opinion, it sounds like. And and by the way, I just looked it up because uh, Maynooth uh, University is in Ireland. I neither feel bad. I neither feel bad for never having heard of it. And I also now retract any sense that my uh, not having heard of it means anything about the quality of the university. I'm sure it's a fine institution. <laughs> I know uh, I'm just as parochial as anyone else. Well, and there's um, a joke in here, right, about like a foreign power here helping out Trump in this argument. But <laughs> oh, that would, <laughs> that's, this is an emolument that. that Trump is receiving more <laughs> legal help. Um, but uh, from what it sounds like, there were in response to the amicus filed by Maynooth, the rest of academia responded and said, that's nonsense. Right. <laughs> right. They're like, they're like, there is no way the emoluments clause makes any sense if it doesn't apply to the president of the United States. Like the pre- you can bribe the president. Don't get us wrong. You can absolutely bribe the president. Don't bribe. Uh, don't bribe the undersecretary of commerce, though. <laughs> then we've got a real. Yeah. Then we've got a real issue. Um, but I mean, they did. They said no. He's an officer. They, they. I mean, it's just they're like the presidency is an office. I mean, it's just so funny because you end up going through two hundred years of cases to find when the court referred to it as an office and when they referred to him as being under the United States. And it's like, yeah, there are plenty of them. Yeah, this this whole opinion is kind of a con law professor's dream, right? In terms of the court just being really explicit about, you know, like these are the different methods of interpretation that we use when we um, interpret a statute. And, you know, as much as it is, um, as much evidence as they like bring out of like the originalist intent, the textualist intent, the purposivism. I hadn't even heard that word <laughs> of that's how we're interpreting uh, statutes now. Um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of um, decades of um, interpretation. It's a law professor's dream, but a law student's nightmare because I, <laughs> I graduated only like five years ago and I barely read anything about the emoluments clause. I think maybe one question on the MBE about it, but now it's going to be an essay question for sure next year. That's right. Right. 
Right. Everyone's got to be up to date on their emoluments clause knowledge just in case they ever hold uh, an office of profit or trust under the United States. Right. Um, which uh, I never, ever will. Um, and so and then they and then so he's like, OK, so if you're going to say it applies to me, uh, this isn't an emolument. This is not an emolument because the only thing that is an emolument is uh, if you do side work directly related to your job. Anything else is fine. Right. You can if you're a president and you need to make ends meet and work a second job, just work that second job. You know, times are tough in 2018. Uh, $400,000 doesn't go as far as it used to um, burn the midnight oil, have a second job. That is not an emoluments clause violation. And again, the court is like, that can't be right. <laughs> Um, you know, like the, though I thought one thing that was, they, I, I'm surprised it never came up. Like the emoluments clause says that Congress can't raise or lower, um, they can't raise or lower, uh, the, um, the, the, Salary? the, um, the emoluments of the office. And I just thought that was very funny because they had to proactively make sure that if the president wasn't voting the right way, that Congress didn't like change the salary to the minimum wage (laughs) (laughs) because that's literally what it is. It's like, you can't by statute while the person is in office, change the salary in any direction. (laughs) And it just, it never came up that they couldn't do that here. But I just thought that was funny, but, but they're like, no, it's an emolument. That can't be, it can't be that restricted. And then they, you know, eventually they get into the specific facts. Um, Charles, I didn't know. I mean, I don't know if you want to go into kind of the like the fact that there was uh, both an international and a domestic emolument. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So kind of the 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 violations of the emoluments clauses that are that are alleged by the plaintiff are first of all, like we said, the Trump Hotel, for example, getting business from Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. But there's also domestic emoluments violations um, in that the Trump Hotel, the plaintiffs allege. Um, has received um, um, an emolument from the federal government, from the American federal government in the form of the the GSA lease. Um, And that's the lease that governs the the Trump Hotel's use of the old post office building in D.C. Um, And that lease explicitly states that no elected official of the government of the United States shall be admitted to any share or part of this lease or to any benefit that may arise therefrom. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, I thought the, the sequence on that was really funny because obviously um, when Trump got elected while Obama was still the president, right, in between the election and the inauguration, uh, the question was, how does this fit with the lease? And so the Obama GSA was like, oh, he's got to divest, <laughs> Like Donald, the the president absolutely has to divest or else this is a violation of the lease. And then as it's set out in the opinion, uh, Trump gets elected. He issues a budget and it slashes the budget of basically every agency in the country except for the GSA. <laughs> and and then the GSA reverses and goes, that's nah, not a violation. Right. <laughs> 
And and so now it's okay for Donald Trump to have a substantial interest uh, through the Trump organization in the uh, in the management of the of the Trump Hotel. And so that was like one of the things. The other was just like the uh, the Saudi Arabian and Kuwaiti delegations stayed at the hotel when Paul LePage came to D.C. from Maine on, you know, to kiss the ring and whatever other state interests he had. He stayed at the hotel um, and very also sort of clearly did so because it was Trump's. You know, in like a really demonstrative way. And shortly thereafter, got everything he wanted, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so the and so that was in there. The I'm trying to think what other uh, he had a couple of other points of uh, there were tax breaks for the hotel given by DC, which could be considered emoluments, I think. Yeah. And a question and, I had was about, I mean, other, if other people would join or, you know, so I'm thinking about like the Trump tower in New York. They, um, they, current- they brought that up in the, in the, the standing case, right? They said they tried to bring in uh, more distant properties and saying that that was affecting them too. And, and what they said was, um, we're not going to rule out, that somebody in Florida might have a really good claim they could bring vis-a-vis Mar-a-Lago, but we're not going to permit you to throw all that stuff in here. But they, mm-hmm. the court definitely almost invited uh, follow-on suits in other jurisdictions. Yep. And I mean, they, like they, the, I think the facts and the complaints and the motion to dismiss colloquies and stuff, they listed like the number of, similarly situated properties in the DC area that were the market and that would be affected by the emoluments clause for both standing and motion to dismiss purposes, you know, like the, the, I don't remember. And I'm like, I'm thinking about the, I'm thinking about the standing case. And one of the things that Maryland and DC tried to argue was kind of a parents Patriot theory where they were suing on behalf of the businesses in their, uh, jurisdictions right. that would have been, and I don't remember if the court found that that was an adequate theory. I think they did. They definitely. Uh, well, I know they did as market participants. Like they said, because like Maryland owns no, the on convention the, on the parents center. Patriot as well. Like the the, the, the okay. idea that residents of our state or other 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 uh, commercial interests in our state are being harmed by the fact that this this property has a thumb on the scale. Yeah. And then and like the it's all of the 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 arguments that uh, the president made throughout the opinion just seem to be things that like very superficially you could distinguish. Like they're like, well, when he was the president, uh, George Washington owned a parcel and he sold it and that did not create an emoluments problem. And back then, if George Washington was doing it, we look to the we look to that for the original understanding. And they're like, well, first of all, Congress approved it. Uh, so which they can, you know, in certain in certain respects, though, I thought the, the congressional approval was only with respect to the 
foreign emoluments clause, but they're like, they did it. So they kind of went in eyes wide open. And second of all, Washington explicitly said, look, if you want me to just divest myself of this, if anyone thinks it's an emoluments problem for me to sell this parcel, then I'll just sort of give it away. (laughs) And then everyone's like, no, no, you don't have to. And so the court distinguished that. And then the other thing was Reagan had a pension um, from his time as governor uh, in California and they kept paying the pension. And so he's like, aha. And they're like, well, no, because his pension rights vested and he didn't have to do anything new. That was just money that he like was already entitled to before he was president. And no, like the, the pension fund of California isn't changing anything. They're just cutting him the same check that they would have cut regardless of whether he held the office or not. And it's, you know, so they just sort of try to throw anything in where any sort of person got any kind of cash, Um, even though there were like plenty of cases where like officers, like someone at NASA and someone in another agency, like was offered consulting work. And the GSA was like, no, you absolutely can't do that. (laughs) Like you can't you can't work outside of your. You can't sell your uh, expertise while you're still working for the government in this capacity. Unfortunately, Trump has no expertise. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's they tried to argue that too. They're like <laughs> they're like they're like the Trump Hotel has nothing to do with his presidential responsibilities, and so it's completely outside of the umbrella of what the emoluments clause is supposed to be, which is to say, you can't sell your office outside and the court was like that's too cramped because everyone is clearly trying to bribe him indirectly uh by staying at his hotel um though i think one of the i think one of the more interesting things about this is how much it exposes our entire campaign finance system which is like uh, like a huge structured indirect bribery scheme Right. Um, which and every time uh, like Montana, I guess, has like centuries of history with this. And they're just a state that sort of perpetually tries to pass like restrictive campaign finance laws on the grounds of, you know, anti-corruption. And like one of them, I guess, just got through the Ninth Circuit. and We'll see if the Supreme Court kills it again. But the Supreme Court has killed them before. Like they killed like a statute that dated back to the like the 1800s um, when like when corruption was like so rampant uh, in Montana that they passed what was even for its time a very draconian campaign finance bill. And there, you know, and that was Kennedy being like, I don't know about this appearance of impropriety stuff. It seems a little, uh, it seems a little remote to me, (laughs) like just completely pretending that all of campaign finance isn't an organized bribery scheme. (laughs) It was funny that redevelopment is coming into this. I mean, that's how they really were able to prove their injury. In fact, is, is that after what, almost two decades after Kilo, um, so much private enterprise downstairs, uh, down downtown in a major city is um, a mixed private and public enterprise. And so that's how they're actually established, you know, showing that there's standing is that these city owned or these state owned enterprises are the ones that are at risk. That's interesting. I didn't even know that. But that means for for people who don't know, Kilo 
uh, Kilo versus New London was like a big takings uh, was a big um, takings clause case um, where uh, the where the not not takings clause eminent domain case where uh, the city of New London tried to condemn part of the city on the grounds that it was blighted so that it could be shared uh, for development. I think at the time it was Pfizer who wanted to use the property in like a public private partnership and the Supreme court okayed it. They were like, yeah, that's part of that's definitely okay. Under eminent domain in a, in a, a I don't remember the lineup though. It was a weird, it was a weird decisional lineup that kind of crossed political lines and the people who were maddest about it were actually like conservatives and libertarians you know, like some so what I remember at the time was some group tr- like put in a petition to condemn like Justice Souter's childhood home in New Hampshire <laughs> on the grounds that it was in disrepair um, so that they could redevelop his house on the Kilo versus New London theory. Because he was I, th- I think it was like Souter and the liberals um, said that it was an OK use of uh, state power to condemn this. And then of course there were a lot of like the, the sort of political lines were both like, like libertarians. And then I think a lot of like minority representation groups, because it seemed like a way of kicking a lot of black people out of their homes for the purposes of just private development. And so people were sort of mad all over the place there. Um, But uh I, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but that I guess that probably is the origin of the Maryland Convention Center. Well, I mean, you have uh, all over the place. You have these cities. Uh, cities have heavily invested in their downtown by trying to attract private capital. In fact, Trump was one of the first people to take advantage of that for housing. You know, back in uh, New York City in the early '80s. You know, you get into these right. agreements and you set up these these uh, joint ventures, and so you know, it's kind of ironic now that he's uh, essentially becoming a victim. I mean. Somebody who's allegedly a victim of it, I guess. <laughs> right. Took him. Took it. Only took you know forty years for that chicken to come home to roost <laughs> in a standing opinion on his emoluments. That's right. <laughs> The New York Times side Staying alive was no job At second hands Moms bounced on old men So then we moved to Shallon Land A young youth So, uh Alright, so the second The second case uh What with the emoluments Being a sort of Good news decision Very strange This is unfamiliar Ground uh, For <laughs> podcast right. listeners uh, we've got a second topic in a row where the result is a good result. Um, and we're talking about it I, because of sort of the underlying politics of it. This is uh, the state of Oregon versus Fonte, uh, which starts out as like a like a two hundred dollar or whatever, one hundred and fifty dollar shoplifting case uh, at a department store uh, in Oregon and ends up in the Supreme Court of the state of Oregon because of uh, persistent prosecutorial overreach. Uh, does someone want to 
Someone want to give the basic facts of this one? Yeah. So it, um, yeah, this case arises when Mr. Peter Fonte, uh, like Charles said, he's in a department store. He uh, grabs a pair of jeans uh, off of the sales floor, He takes it to the cash register and, um, you know, tells the store employee that he wants to return the jeans. And so he gets a cash refund for jeans that he uh, has not purchased. Um, so he does that one day. It's about one hundred and twenty dollars, if I recall correctly. The next day he comes back. Um, this time, a different pair of jeans grabs them. They're a hundred. They're worth one hundred and fifty dollars. A little bit nicer um, jeans. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> slightly yep. nicer jeans this time um, and uh, gets the cash. Um, and as he's walking out of the store, I guess the, the theft security people, loss prevention people stop him. And um, that's where well, that's where this starts. So basically, he's he's charged um, under Oregon's theft statute. But prosecutors charge this in, in a special way that makes this um, theft in the first degree in Oregon. It's a class C felony, um, which is punishable by up to five years in prison um, because they charge this as theft by receiving, which um, in Oregon means that you you commit theft by buying, selling, borrowing, or lending on the security of the property. Um, so rather than this being sort of just a simple shoplifting case, um, it ends up, um, the, the guy ends up with a, with a felony conviction looking at up to five years. Um, and if, if he had just right. walked out the door with the jeans, it would have, it would have been a misdemeanor. Yes, it would have been a shoplifting misdemeanor if he walks out with the jeans and and they charge it like the statute is basically meant uh, for fences. fences, Right. Is that what? Right. Like it is. It is for the receipt of stolen goods and the sale of stolen goods. Right. So it's so it is basically it is basically for fencing. And they have they I guess it had been a very sort of it had become a common way of charging this kind of theft right they had it had become sort of a basic pattern charge in Oregon where they would take people in this situation like if you had walked out with the jeans it's shoplifting if you trick a cashier and walk out with the cash you're now a fence and so they were charging it as felony theft. And it was, we, we ended up with two opinions in this case, right? It was an on it was an on banc decision at the Supreme court of Oregon. It was <clears throat> both, both opinions come out on the side of the defendant, but the majority opinion goes through like this really sort of intense analysis of what they intended when they passed this statute and how different things uh, were meant in the back. And a lot we of can legislative get into history that. Or, yeah. Yeah. A lot of legislative history, a lot of like previous nightmare. opinions. All the way back Real, to common law, larceny and all yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, I'm right. Those were, that's the part that's, that Scalia would love is that it goes into like the ancient common law of these crimes and like all of that. And then the concurrence is basically like, look, I know that this argument was waived because this kid's attorney screwed it up, but he didn't like, because basically the, in the court below, uh, the there were like concessions on the facts of the case. And he's like, but 
it wasn't stealing until he got the money. <laughs> right? right. You're allowed to take jeans from the floor to the cashier. That's how a shopping center works. Right. Right. It wasn't stealing until he got the money. And so it should only be the theft of one hundred and fifty dollars and not felony theft because like the amount was below the the felony count in any event the, the felony right? the felony statute for offenses requires that there be an earlier theft right i mean that's that's right. the way he was coming out here was that you didn't picking up the jeans and bringing them up did not count as that first theft that was required under the statute therefore the entire 100 page analysis of the other panel was unnecessary uh, according to him right but but, but for, for the, the fact lower that, court yeah. concession yeah. right he's like he's like look i know i can't come out this way and since my colleagues Came out another have way. all gotten yeah. <laughs> they, like they got the right result now so I i'm go not going to go yeah. bananas over yeah. here but can i just say for the record, this whole thing is stupid as yeah. hell because he didn't steal the jeans. He just tricked a cashier. And Oregon has a theft by deception statute. That was the annoying part of this. I mean, it was a mis- they have a clear one that was for a misdemeanor level between $100 and $1,000 that the DA had the option of charging them with. But, uh, I mean, presumably because the DA wanted to overcharge and work down from there in a negotiation, uh, they went at them with a felony, or at least this has been, com- or this was even worse. This was a common practice within that office. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was a common practice. Like they had been doing it, and there were, and there were other cases. Like they they cited to another case, which kind of came out the same way. And he's like, "Well, we can't really." The, the court sort of dismissed the precedent because they're like, "Look, he pled to one, and they dismissed the other charge, and so." Like the fact that he the fact that he chose to plead guilty to it in the in the kind of fencing statute uh, doesn't really change our analysis. The fact is he wasn't charged with both uh, theft by receiving and theft. He just sort of picked the one, you know, because he was going to pick one or the other. And so we don't give it a lot of precedential value on his own kind of negotiating step. Uh, yeah. And what. But, I was just going to jump in to say, like, I, what I like about the what I like about obviously this the case is the result. But what's frustrating about it is is exactly like you said, Charles, that the the majority opinion really I mean, this is like a very sort of technical language analysis and breakdown of the statute. Um, and the court doesn't you know, the court doesn't say this is prosecutorial overreach. This is overcharging. This is about, you know, abuse of prosecutorial discretion. Um, and, and, you know, I guess that, that kind of, to me makes it, um, you know, a little bit meaningless, a little bit of a weaker opinion because it's just sort of about this, um, this individual statute. Yeah. I mean, there's kind of an undercurrent in it, right. But they never really come out and say, uh, that this was probably kind of bullshit. Like they rein them in, but they don't do it in a way that's like an admonishment, really. Right. They're just like, ah, we happen to disagree with you on this one, but nice try. Um, if you ever want to try to overcharge another statute, we'll uh, we'll give we'll give it our best efforts to get you there, but not this time. I mean, like I I know both of you. Uh, 
uh, Rhiannon and Stefan, you both do defense, like defense work and like, talk a little about how this affects your job. Go ahead, Stefan. Oh, well, I mean, I, I'm starting out. So uh, for the last couple of years, I've been taking a lot of misdemeanor cases like this. And when you start out at a felony level, um, you're automatically working from behind because instead of trying to try for a case like this, trying to push somebody into a diversionary program or um, try to get a suspended sentence so that you can essentially, you know, the, the DA can get their, you know, can get their charge or get somebody hooked up in community service. Um, you know, you're, you're instead operating from the point of, from the point where now you've got a, a mid-level district attorney who has a, you know, not maybe a hard quota, but is trying to, but has a certain direction from their, from their office to, you know, basically put years on people. And it's a, it's a hard place to try to talk your way out of that, especially if like this gentleman, you know, they're dead to rights in terms of the facts. You know, loss prevention got them. They were stupid and went back to the, uh, to the same store that they tricked the first time. You know, that's very common for a lot of these folks, but, um, you know, not starting off from a misdemeanor and trying to work it down to an infraction uh, and instead working from a felony and trying to work it down to a misdemeanor is, uh, you know, that's, that's years and off the, your client's life. And that's a lot of money of, that they're going to end up having to spend in fines and restitution for of what is a very, very tiny, uh, you know, crime at the end of the day. I think that's absolutely right. And I think also, so in the, in the felony context, I think a lot about how, um, you know, based on what court you're in front of, based on what state you're in, right? In Texas, a lot of allows a sort of allow for prosecutorial overreaching. So I'm thinking about like the law of parties, right? Which which sort of allows prosecutors to to really overcharge um for people who are literally factually less culpable um and and sort of get, you know, um oh, well define it. What is to talk to tell people? Oh, sure. So the law the law of parties um uh, it works differently, I'm sure, in every jurisdiction, but here in Texas um, allows for a defendant to be charged um, with um, really any any offense in the penal code um, if they were acting um, in concert with somebody else, even though they didn't commit the, the actual act or even have intent for for um, the result. But if the result was quote unquote, reasonably foreseeable, then so you can, can be so charged. conspiracy like stuff sure. or felony murder types. Exactly. Of felony murder um, in the, in the like serious felonies context is, is a big one. Um, and then the other thing that this case makes me think about um, is sort of a, a wider sort of systemic thing. I think um, the author John Pfaff is, is talking a lot about this lately that, you know, um, Mass incarceration in the United States isn't so much, um, you know, about the the war on drugs and and the criminalization of of more and more things, um, like Michelle Alexander says in the New Jim Crow. But also a huge factor is how much power prosecutors have in bringing in deciding to bring cases and how to bring cases and how to charge in in plea negotiations, in all of the power they wield in those um, in the criminal law that we kind of overlook when we're talking about mass incarceration and we just sort of talk about police and judges. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think when you think about a case like this, right, it's one hundred and fifty bucks. Right. Yeah. Right. It's one hundred and fifty bucks and they charge it as a felony and beyond just the jail sentence. 
like the collateral consequences of something like this, right? Yes. Loss of voting rights in like in in 2018 under Trump, then, you know, anyone who commits any kind of infraction uh, who has immigration issues is getting deported. But this case probably took a few years to wind through the system. And, you know, say four or five years ago, the difference between a felony or a misdemeanor or a misdemeanor or an infraction could be the difference between this person getting deported or not. Right. Uh, at the end of their sentence or at the end or at the sort of the disposition of their case. And so making these making these making the decision to charge a theft by receiving on a guy who tried to trick a cashier out of 150 bucks is you're making a lot of decisions about this guy's life going forward. You know, I mean, beyond just how much more. It costs like you have to actually pay an attorney to get you, you know, I mean, you maybe you have a public defender, but you've got a for a felony. You're going to fight it a lot harder than maybe you will. Like you may just consider like a misdemeanor charge the cost of doing business if the way that you kind of survive is with this kind of shoplifting. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's not, maybe that's a vote, you know, for real law and order people for overcharging, but like, it's a very different calculus if, you know, there's a reason why there's an entire statutory, uh, body of law that says $150 shoplifting is a misdemeanor. And then going around that to find ways to charge people with felonies seems like a, sort of aggressive policy. Well, this went all the way to the Supreme Court, right? So um, it did cost a lot of people a lot of time uh, and money, the, the defendant and the state. Uh, resources that, you know, are just absolutely pissed away uh, in a sort of idiotic attempt to ruin some dumb guy's life over a pair of jeans. And it shows also the the level that resentencing and realignment as a concept has. To, I mean, the, the effort that you have to go through to make it happen. Uh, California, we had to do a whole statewide initiative to prevent this exact sort of uh, overcharging. Um, Prop, Proposition 47. Um, it seems like instead in Oregon, it's going to be a piecemeal effort where it's going to be individual cases with facts very much like this that are going to be, have to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. You know, and I mean, some of this goes back to I wish I remembered the episode number. Um, but when we talked about uh, Larry Krasner and his uh, his reforms in Philadelphia, that was episode 11. I remember because it was my yeah. first episode. Right. <laughs> good, good. There we go. There's the reference. Uh, so listen to listen to us talk about uh, listen to us talk about Philadelphia in episode 11. If you want an example of a jurisdiction that's trying to do this correctly to bring some level of uh fairness and uh proportion to the way these cases are handled and from the um and from the crime side too just never go back to the same place you rip off it's yeah exactly out. right yeah that's my only <laughs> real uh, uh, quibble with uh, what the guy did and people were behaving like they ought to good there lived a little boy who was misled by another little boy, and this is what he said. Me and you tonight, we're gonna make some cash, robbing old folks and making the dash. They did the job, money came with ease, but one couldn't stop, it's like he had a disease. He robbed another and another, and my sister and a brother. 
So we we close today on uh, on an old friend, an old friend. We have talked about him at least twice, and it's always for the same reason. <laughs> and it is because and it is because on information and belief. Roy Moore, former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama, was banned from the Gadsden Mall. <laughs> On information and belief, uh, that is what uh, was reported. And in good faith, uh, I believe, even though uh, there is contrary reporting. There is contrary reporting, so I want to make clear it could have been that somebody not else. everyone agrees with <laughs> right, this. Right. And so that I don't end up as a fictitious defendant uh, in this suit. But it has definitely been reported in multiple Many outlets. Many people are saying that he was banned many from, people the, from the mall. That he was banned from the mall. But many people now. are also not saying that. Yes. Um, uh, and so he is he has now he has initiated what is, by my count, the 309th lawsuit against people uh, who said that he was banned from the mall. And this time it's all of the people who advertised uh, on behalf of Doug Jones in the Senate campaign, <laughs> because uh, apparently uh, one of the super PACs that was advertising uh, on behalf of Doug Jones, uh, essentially called Roy Morris sex criminal. <laughs> uh, and so he was very upset with that. So here's who he sued. He sued the super PAC, all of the other Democratic PACs that seem to fund the super PAC, he fund all of their contractors, and then a lot of fictitious defendants uh, who provided material help in one way or another to get these ads on the air or online. Yeah, 20 of them. He's fictitious yes. defendants, one through 20. Yep. Uh, and so uh, pretty, pretty funny stuff. He has like affidavits from like six different people all say like mall employees. <laughs> and Which are all like, I worked at Auntie Anne's and yes, right. Roy Moore could come anytime and get a pretzel. Like basically. Right. There is like, there, there's the former head of security who said uh, that he was not banned. And the former manager says, to my knowledge, he was not banned. And I would have known. I and, would have known. And <laughs> right, I, I would have right. known. Uh, I another employee was like, I I worked at the cafeteria and I do not believe he was banned. And I think someone else may have been, but I'm not going to name him because he's dead and I don't want to speak ill of him. Uh, but it is definitely not Roy Moore. Certainly something that will definitely uh, he'll be able to stick by uh, during cross-examination. Well, and seem to imply that this dead person was banned from the mall for accusing Roy Moore. Right. Wait. Uh, I missed that part. No, hold I on. didn't see that. Yes, hold no, on. No, 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 no. He was banned for reasons such as the allegations against Judge Moore, which is to say 
he was banned for creeping on teens. Yeah. Oh, not, oh, okay. Not for, <laughs> not for, not for repeating the allegations, okay, yeah, but for actually being. No, no, no. I think I think this unnamed, uh, similarly situated lion of the Alabama bar was banned from the more mall because he was actually the mall pervert. That could um, be a very simple explanation for this whole big mistake. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. This, this could be it. Was, it. it was Roy Moose yeah. um, <laughs> who was banned from the. So yeah, so that's not uh, that's not great. Um, so he goes through. I I just want to say that like he gets really mad because the the story about him being banned from the mall was in the New Yorker. And it was in uh, it was like in various other news sources. And then in paragraph 42, he says, you know, that Barnes Boyle, who was one of the mall employees who said it definitely wasn't Roy Moore. uh, And he was interviewed on the local news. And he goes between uh, November 16th and November 18th. This interview was widely reported in conservative media including the Washington Examiner, Breitbart News. Like it just, it really, <laughs> like it starts off with the Washington Examiner and then very quickly, like rockets downhill. Like it, like verrucked downhill. <laughs> it goes Washington Examiner, Breitbart News, Gateway Pundit, Western Journalism Review, Daily Wire, and American Thinker. Right? It starts off with the, the Washington Daily Examiner, Storm. which is basically a newspaper and it ends with the American thinker, which is literally Nazi propaganda. <laughs> like it is, it is a, it is a race science, uh, website. And it, right. And daily wire. That's Ben Shapiro, right? That is, yes. Yep. Yes. Daily wire is Ben Shapiro. Western journalism review is like a, like as far as I recall, kind of like a fake Facebooky conservative, thing but it's just like it is it is it is appropriately placed from what i could tell after gateway pundit and before daily wire which by the way is an insane own of ben shapiro (laughs) (laughs) ben shapiro ends up in the pecking order behind jim hoff who who had his brain surgically removed when he was 14 (laughs) because <laughs> it's it stopped him from getting in the way of his thoughts. Um, and so then they were like, look, it was reported in all of these places. And still you ran ads calling me a sex pest. And that can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> and it really it really does sound, by the way, that like some of these ads were way out of pocket. If you don't yeah. vote, then Roy Moore, a child predator wins. Could you live with that? Your vote is a public record and your community will know whether or not you help to stop Roy Moore. Yeah, that's some pretty brown <laughs> right. fucking shit right there, I gotta say. Yeah, I hate to, I hate to take amazing. Roy Moore's side, but there's a lot going on. <laughs> right. And and like the 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 FEC or whoever the investigating organization was was like, you absolutely cannot say that. 
right? You can't say that people will know if you voted for Roy Moore because (laughs) the fact that you voted is a public record, but it doesn't say who you voted for. And so you absolutely can't say that. And it says in the complaint that they responded by they indicated, right, when Secretary of State John Merrill made an official finding of misinterpretations and misrepresentations, Highway 31, the pack that ran the ad, quote, indicated they would not amend or take any of the information out of the ad. And so they're just like, no, 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 no. We're going to keep going. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. And then we're going to close up shop and run away um, before before we uh before we have to answer for any of this they made a file they they filed for three million dollars at the end of the year that they had who did that the highway 31 the uh the super PAC behind that so they had yeah. they had three million dollars to burn on those ads <laughs> i the complaint is astonishingly poorly written um <laughs> And, but and so I have a few favorite quotes, but one of my favorites, they're so dramatic while also being um, Moore's attorneys are like, it's so dramatic, but also just completely ineffective at arguing. So uh, quote, this is paragraph 74. Not only did Roy Moore suffer a loss of reputation, but the people of the state of Alabama to include 650,432 Alabamians who voted for him suffered a severe loss when he was not successful in his bid for U.S. Senate. I just, I I love that. They were deprived of the (laughs) honor of having more. He's suing in parents' patriot (laughs) on behalf of all of his voters. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things. Like, he, he sued... Like he claims loss because the whole campaign was a waste of his fucking time. (laughs) He's like, I could have been, I could have been working. I could have like seen Paris. Like I could have done a lot of things, but instead I was running for office where this guy kept calling me a sex criminal and then I didn't win. (laughs) And so like all of that was a waste of my time. And so I get lost opportunity damages. He sues for loss of consortium. Okay, we have to get to that. Right? Yeah, this yes. is loss of consortium is, is everyone's favorite claim. Uh, where he says the emotional anguish suffered by both spouses from the false and defamatory acts impaired the enjoyment of their marriage and diminished their capacity <laughs> to provide the com- customary love, companionship, affection, society, comfort, solace, and support they had experienced prior to the defamatory acts. That is in paragraph 76, Roy Moore uh, said that his dick stopped working. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or the pathway was completely closed. Either way, he's suing uh, for lack of, uh, for lack of conjugal relations. The defense of that is that Kayla Moore actually, you know, self-owned more than any of these attacks. She's the one who brought up the, you know, quote, Jew lawyer that (laughs) in the campaign. (laughs) So if anything right. lowered her standard, in, you know, even among, in Alabama, it was her own self. But yeah, for hiring a Jew lawyer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, the OK, so uh, <laughs> it is believed, by the way, that f- almost forty four million dollars was spent in ads uh, opposing Roy Moore, not in not by the defendants, but forty four million dollars of ads run against the system him, works, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> the system yes. works, right? <laughs> in, 
I now know that he's um, a pedophile at work. <laughs> right. right. Allegedly. Um, information yeah, and belief. Allegedly. Information and belief. <laughs> um, but yeah, he sees so, but, but I mean, I have to say like as much as loss of consortium is always my favorite claim, my favorite, favorite claim is that he wasted his time running. <laughs> and so he's suing for lost opportunity damage. It's like, that's the greatest, that's the greatest possible thing I've ever heard. And so, so he sues, he sues again. This comes up for wantonness. He sued for wantonness before. Um, and, uh, he sues for uh, libel slash slander um, for, you know, for uh, the fact that he uh, may or may not be a sex pest. Uh, but yeah, it's just, but it, and by the way, it is, it's the same attorney as the last time. Uh, it is, uh, it is um, Garmin. Trenton Garmin is back. Uh, the guy who, first started like screaming about all of this while the campaign was going on. Like he sued, he sent a cease and desist to like the Washington post and al.com, the local uh, Alabama news source that first reported on all of the women who specifically by name and on the record were accusing him of like fondling and uh, like preying upon them when they were teenagers. And so, you know, obviously nothing came of any of that because all of those women were on the record. And so all of the news sources had a right to rely on them and run those stories. And I don't think, I guess maybe she, at the time, maybe his wife sued some of the women, but I haven't heard anything about those cases in a long time, but now they're gunning for all of the, all of the packs behind the ads um the and i gotta say you know at least the <laughs> some of these may have some teeth like i don't know how they fit in with the actual claims because like the libel and slander and the loss of consortium and i don't know but like the one ad which is like your vote will be recorded <laughs> like i just don't know how that's compensable no um it, no one told him about the streisand effect too you know, the more he sues about these things, the more people are going to know that allegedly he's a pedophile. I think he has accepted. <clears throat> I think that's reached a saturation point, too. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think he has accepted that literally everyone in Alabama knows that he's a sex pest. And like the like there are there are people there who will admit it. And there are people there who, for political reasons, uh, will deny it and stand by him. But uh, nobody is letting him come to the high school play. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's it. His his time. He can't. He's got to he's got to just, you know, use seamless. Can he go back to the mall, though? At this point, wouldn't that be the way to prove this? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. I I think you're right, Stefan. I think we should take judicial notice of the fact that he has not gone back to the food court. Um, for you know, like you just have to go to Panda Express once, buddy. On Facebook Live, it's that easy. All right, uh, so I think we're good. I'd like to thank everyone who uh, appeared on episode 19 with me. Uh, Eric Diaper. That's me. Uh, the hell dude. That's, uh, that's also Rich Lather um, and uh, Rhiannon Thanks, and Stefan. Uh, I am here. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I'm your host, Charles Starr. Thanks for listening to Mike Dick. Good night. Good night. night. I've been to many malls from state to state, but I've never been in say one this race. I hate to say about the other shopper centers this life, but the Albie Square Mall is the doo-doo death. I be in there every day, walking around chilling. From when they open all the way until when it's about time for the place to close. I'm just running things like a pair of pantyhose. They all know me, the Bismarck I get more respect than the average employee. I work in any store in the mall because the place is my house. If I can move in party people, I just might so I can stay forever and it will be just like a bum that you see sleeping on apartments. This is how it will be when you see Bismarck in my favorite mall for having fun. See, to me this mall is like number one. And any other shopper center to try to compare, there ain't no way they can hang out with